You guys have some bass in this church. That was intense. Anybody riding by is going to know something's going on in here tonight. Wow. Let's kick it off with a word of prayer. Lord, I just thank you for the opportunity to come back here. Every time I, I step into this sanctuary, Lord, I just I, I feel the spirit. I know that people here love you, Lord. And I just ask that our time together tonight, we glorify you. Um, Lord, that you would open up eyes to those who don't know what, uh, the evil that is occurring in this world. And for those being called to ministry and have, have yet to step out in it, Lord, I, I just ask that this would motivate them to do so, that they would walk as you walked, Lord, and would obey whatever it is that you have them uh, to do. Lord, we love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. My name is Sky Barkley. I live in Tacoa, Georgia, kind of. We, uh, my wife and I have spent the last uh, two years overseas in Iraq, Syria, Thailand, Burma. Um, and my wife's not here this evening. I'm kind of lost in the sauce without her. Normally, this would be like super aesthetically pleasing and feng shui, or if you believe in that stuff or not. Um, but she's not here. I'm, how many guys are just a lot better off when their wife is around? Anybody? Yeah, you better raise your hand, man. You're gonna be in trouble later on. Uh, my wife and I work with two different organizations. We work with the Free Burma Rangers, uh, which is based out of Chiang Mai, Thailand. And the Free Burma Rangers were founded by a gentleman named David Eubank in 1997. And there's a 70 year running civil war in that country. It's called Myanmar. We still call it Burma. Uh, we frankly think that Myanmar is an attempt by the regime to whitewash the atrocities that have occurred there. Um, and so David Eubank is a former ranger and special forces major. And what he did was get out and he took the philosophy of the Green Berets and made it into a ministry. And so what they do is they train up the ethnic Burmese to be medics to document humanitarian rights violations. We do the GLC, uh, the GLC, which is the Good Life Club, which is an opportunity to spend time with children, build them up, and give them an opportunity to meet children. And uh, this gentleman was then invited to go to Sudan with his organization, and then eventually invited into uh, Iraq and then Syria. I wasn't born a saint. I enlisted in the Marine Corps when I was 17. I went to recruit training when I was 18, and I had deployed to, uh, to Iraq by the time I was 19. And I, I didn't come to know the Lord until I was uh, 26. Up till then, I had been a police officer. I had been trained as an EMT. I had worked on drilling rigs in Wyoming, Colorado, and Utah. And I, I figured something out, that this huge God-shaped hole that we have in our heart, it's not gonna be filled by the things of this world. I, I had money. And I used to chase women and I used to do all of these things. And um, that's not gonna fill that hole. So I had an existential crisis, sold everything I owned and what same person wouldn't do this, moved to live with an indigenous tribe in the Amazon for two months. <laughs> but it worked because there I, I, had a, I, had a, I was transformed by the renewing of my mind. I came to understand that the best thing that we can do is follow Jesus, accept him into our hearts, take up the salvation that's offered to us, but then give it to other people as well. Let people experience the kingdom through our love and, and through our sacrifices. So as I was there and I was praying for purpose, I said, Lord, God, how can I glorify you? Here I am like a beat up old Marine. What, how, what training experiences, how can I use those to glorify you? And the only other gringo for 200 miles came off the Amazon River, came up to me and said, have you ever heard of the Free Burma Rangers? And I said, no, what do they do? And he told me, and I said, that's awesome. I can do that. So I got back and I met my wife and she was always begging me to marry her. So I did. Nobody, people always laugh when I say that. But you're right, it, that it didn't go down that way. But I got married 
and uh, I started attending a Bible college, and then I started hearing about this organization called ISIS. Who's heard of ISIS? Okay. So I started hearing about this organization called ISIS, and uh, you know how Christian people always turn around, throw around this term burdened? Anybody ever hear that? Anybody ever hear the term burdened? Right? I hear this term, and I, and I didn't understand what that meant. I'm like, is that when you have to go out sack and you got to force march for 20 miles? Burned. I couldn't sleep at night. I couldn't sleep at night. All I wanted to do was go and help. And I told my wife one day, hey, what if I, uh, what if I go and help the, the, the Kurds against ISIS somehow? And she said, no. Why would God put the free Burma Rangers in front of you if you're supposed to go to Iraq? I said, that's good. A week later on their website, it said, free Burma Rangers go to northern Iraq to help the Kurds against ISIS. I said, first and last time in my marriage, told you so. <laughs> so my wife and I went overseas and we began working with the, the Free Burma Rangers. We also worked with another organization called the Children's Rescue Initiative where we pull children out of sex trafficking in Asia. So I'm going to tell you guys a little bit about this stuff. Um, I've, I, I had the honor to speak here last summer. Um, I enjoyed it immensely. I love this congregation. Uh, and I want to kind of give you guys an update of what's happened since then, but because I know some of you may have not heard me speak before, I'm going to try and make sure that you're tracking with what's going on. So uh, try to keep up. <laughs> so uh, since I did see you all last, I did participate in uh, the liberation of Hawija. My wife and I, actually I'm going to backtrack a little bit, I hope you forgive me. Um, we went into Burma for two months where I helped train up the ethnic Burmese. When I came out, the, our team in Iraq sent out a message and said, we need more medics. I volunteered. I said, I'll go uh, and I'll pay for my own plane ticket. They said, come on. I went for two weeks, stayed for two months, called my wife up and said, I'm staying here until ISIS is finished. And we did. ISIS disintegrated no longer an actual pseudo state. They don't have control of territory. They have disintegrated back into an insurgency. And I'm glad to say that that has happened. I have never seen the atrocities, the likes of which that this organization has committed. And I'm going to tell you about that this evening. We got to uh, participate in some follow-up visits while we are in Iraq. We saved several people. One was uh, a 19-year-old girl named Hofran. During the fighting in western Mosul, my team came up on a street one night after we had been treated casualties. And when we got to this street, we looked out from the second story of a house and we saw 70 dead bodies, civilians, non-combatants, women, children. I looked straight down and I saw a one-year-old I saw a one-year-old with his head blown off. Oh man, this is an early start. <laughs> and then as we're looking down at this scene, we see movement among the dead, a pile of dead bodies up against a wall. And I realized that there were four children still alive, one of which was about this tall. He was wearing no pants and he was scavenging water off the dead bodies and two injured men. And you know, you find yourself in a situation like that when you hit rock bottom and all you want to do is go and help. And I, and I was thinking crazy stuff. I was like, oh man, I used to run track in high school. I'm pretty quick. I might get out there without getting shot. ISIS had command view over the street. Snipers, 200 of them posted up in a hospital. And we started praying, Lord, give us whatever it is we need. Let us go rescue these children. Let us go rescue these people. We're a Christian NGO and US coalition dropped smoke for us to screen us and then the Iraqis pushed out a tank and we used it as a shield and rushed forward behind it. Some of you may have seen the footage on social media or on the news. David Eubank ran out and he scooped up a girl 
about five years old, she'd been hiding under a dead mother's hijab for two days to get out of the sun. I went out and I scooped up a man. We retreated under fire. This little girl that we rescued on that mission, my buddy Ephraim was shot through the calf. I kind of pick on him because he's a Navy SEAL and he went back to reveal to recuperate. And called him up, I said, Ephraim, I got shot in the leg too, man. Like I got nicked by a bullet. And uh, I got shot in the leg too, why'd you go back, man? I'm still out here on the front. And he's like, no dude, I got shot, you got nicked. There's a difference. <laughs> I pick on him because the whole Marine Corps Navy thing. But he's a Navy SEAL, so he's cool. This little girl that we rescued, her name is Damoa, and she now lives in southern Iraq with her grandmother and her aunt. And when this woman came to visit us, her grandmother, I watched this woman, a Muslim, get down on her feet, get down on your knees and kiss a Christian's feet and thank him. This is David Eubank. And thank him for rescuing her. Her father was a member of ISIS. And when he, she rose up, she said, I had a dream that my daughter was trapped behind a river, an evil, nasty, foul-smelling river. And that's what that street was, full of bodies and trapped. And a shining man walked across that water and picked her up and walked her across the river and took her to a good place. <laughs> you can interpret that any way you want, but I know that we went for Jesus. For greater love has no man than this to lay down his life for his friend. The next day, we found out that they were still living across that street in a bombed out Pepsi factory. And so we started praying again, Lord, send us somebody to get us across there. We, we, need, we need to find out where these people are, but we don't know for sure. We just got word from a bunch of civilians coming through. We need, we need to find these people. And as we're standing there and we're scheming, figuring out a way to go and sneak across this kill zone and sneak in through a Pepsi factory filled with ISIS and, and contested territory, this man starts sprinting towards us up the street. And every Iraqi soldier around us with a weapon, you know, knives, grenades coming out, you know, like this guy's about to get shot because we think he's, he's a suicide bomber. And he stops in his tracks. His hands go up. Turns out his name is Omar. And Omar's a civilian man. And he was getting a warm-up run in because he's going to sprint across that street and he's going to go and save his mom who'd been shot in the leg, in the hip, actually. Because you got to save mom, right? You're not going to leave your mom. And so we talked to him. I'm going to go and rescue my mother. And we prayed for him. And we told him, hey, if you get into trouble, pray to Jesus. He said, he will help you. He said, okay, okay, yes, I will pray to Jesus. Do you have a cigarette? And we're like, no, we don't have cigarettes. <laughs> and he low crawls halfway across the street, jumps up and sprints across, and he disappears. Scrails a retaining wall and disappears for 45 minutes. And the next time we see him, he's carrying his mother on his back. And he was a beast because she was about twice as big as he was. And he's carrying her out. He drops her down a retaining wall where she broke her arm, but he, she got out and got her to a hospital. So we met back up with Omar. He came and he found us. And he said, oh, I, I rescued my mother. He's thrilled. We were praying for you, man. That's amazing. And the leader of our organization, Dave Eubank, he's like, hey, we're gonna, did, you see the, did you see the wounded? We want to go and rescue them. Did you see them? He said, yes, there are many civilians there shot. And Dave Eubank said, do you, you want to come with us? And the guy says, I am with you until death. Ah, right? So we pile into a Humvee and we go across and we snuck in on foot through this Pepsi factory. I got so close to ISIS, I heard them talking to each other. And as we're sneaking through this Pepsi factory, I'm looking at all the positions 
where they were shooting at us from the day before. Knee deep in Pepsi cans. Have you ever tried to walk through Pepsi cans and be, be quiet? It's like if you were a teenager trying to sneak out of the house. Can't do it. God once blinded the enemies of Elisha. And the only reason I'm still alive is because God blinded my enemies. We made a mad dash. The first man I came to had a hole where his knee used to be. Maggots were inside because he'd been laying there for four days. Only one bottle of water. We pulled out five civilians right under Isis's nose. Again, so close to him, we heard him talking to each other. And not once were we shot at, were we seen, because God blinded and deafened our enemies. And that's what he's capable of. See, we like to put limitations on God. I don't know why we like to do that, because we serve an omniscient and omnipotent God. A God that's capable of way more than we are. So why do we put limits on him? Like, we can't go and do amazing things like the apostles and like Christ did, because we have that same power at our back. Just throwing that out there. One of the young ladies that we drug out was a 19-year-old girl named Hofran. Hofran had been shot fleeing alongside her family. When she was shot, two bullets entered her leg, fractured her femur. She went down and her mother stopped to pick her up. That's a mother's love right there. She stopped under fire to pick up her daughter, and a round came in and hit her jaw, knocked out all her upper teeth. She still has a scar. Her mother survived, and so did her three brothers that were shot as well, one of whom was four years old, took a round to the head. Kofran laid out there in the hot sun for a day and a half before she got to where she could start crawling. And she started low crawling towards the nearest building so she could get out of the heat. But ISIS, you see, they're smart. They know what's going on, and so they have drones. And so one of the drones spotted her, and they dropped a grenade on her. And she took shrapnel on the shoulder, but that woman was tough, and she kept crawling. We came across her, and we picked her up. I carried her out. Another woman, we had to uh, sing a chord out to and drag her in because we would have been shot had we tried to go to her. She went unconscious twice in my arms, carrying her out. We got to visit with Aisha and Hassan. On the 4th of May, we entered into West Mosul. And as we invaded, ISIS was hitting us with mortars, car bombs were coming up, sniper fire was accurate, and I found myself crashed down behind a BMP-1, and I was treating five casualties. Another Humvee pulled up as I finished, and the driver said, Andi Juria, Andi Juria, he said, I have a wounded man. And I looked in the back, and there was a guy laying there. He had his entrails sitting on his stomach, and I said, I could treat him, but ISIS is shooting at us, go, go, go to the cover. And he went up to a house that we were hiding behind. And then as we all crouched behind our Humvee, my team was given a Humvee by the Iraqi army because that's the provision of the Lord right there. Yeah. We're a Christian NGO, man. We're not special forces. I know it looked like Black Hawk Down on the screen, but I, I promise this is a Christian NGO. We're crouched down behind a Humvee and we're moving. A round came in. Went through my cargo pocket, shattered my cell phone next to the back of my knee. It was getting hot. When we get to the top and I treated that gentleman and then the leader of our organization, he says, civilian's been hit, let's go, get the Humvee. And now our Humvee's been hit, shot 15 times, it's leaking fluids, oils, you know, water, uh, Dr. Pepper, I don't know, all kinds of stuff just leaking right out of it. I said, I don't know if it's going to run, but we get in and we go. And the gentleman who jumped in the drive for us was an Iraqi soldier by the name of Muhammad. Muhammad had come to us four days before this invasion, and he came to us and he said, I, uh, 
He's a real soft-spoken guy. He says, I, I, want, I want to follow uh, Jesus. You know, the average ministry takes 10 years to see a convert in a primarily Muslim country, but you stand alongside a man in the worst that he's ever faced, and he sees something different because you're willing to lay down your life for him. Makes me think, why? He jumps in the drive for us, and we drive down, and I get out, and there's a little girl. She's been shot in the eye, and I pick her up, and I put her in the Humvee. The AV bank, he picks up her father. He's already been shot in the leg once. He gets shot in his arms again. He throws him in on top of him. And as we try to drive away, our Humvee quits working. And now we're trapped in the open, waiting to catch a rocket propelled grenade. And I started praying. And it's interesting because the answer started off in the form of Muhammad, a man who up to four days ago had been a Muslim. He turns to Dave Eubank and he says, I will go get another Humvee. He jumps out and sprinted 150 meters under fire, zigzagging, brought down another Humvee. And when he got down there, he parked right next to us. And my friend and interpreter, Shaheen, who'd been by my side since the start of the invasion, he stepped out of the Humvee and immediately took a bullet right through the stomach. I watched the bullet go through his body and ricochet off the door. He screamed and he went down. And then Muhammad, my buddy, the new Christian, he gets out and he picks up Shaheen and he puts him into the Humvee and he drives off. Except he got shot six times in the process. He took three rounds of the torso, two in the arm and one in the neck. Shaheen died 10 days later in the hospital of a massive infection, but Muhammad survived. And the update on Muhammad is this. He left the Iraqi army, now works with the Free Burma Rangers, has moved his family up to Rabiul, ministers to his family, his four daughters and his wife. And when I asked him, I said, Muhammad, you got, buddy, you got shot six times. What was going through your head, man? What were you thinking? He says this, first, uh, first five bullet, like, like needle. I, only little pain, I feel only little pain, but here, I can't breathe blood, but I not give up because Jesus. And I can't, I can't make this up. I had the opportunity to go to Syria the last time I was here. Crossed the border and went into Syria to see what was going on and how we could help in that region. We installed three uh, playgrounds, three different areas. One in a city where most of the orphans in that city, their parents have been slaughtered by an, in an invasion by ISIS. But what really stood out to me was the situation in a place called Raqqa. Anybody ever hear of Raqqa? Raqqa? Oh, no, not many people. Raqqa was the... Raqqa was the capital of ISIS. I went there and I've never seen a place so destroyed. I thought West Mosul would be the worst thing I'd ever seen. And every single building looked like it's been split in half, like a dollhouse, because it's all been hit by airstrikes. I went to an IDP camp, internally displaced persons. And we went to recon the site for a Good Life Club program. Came back four days later and as we're conducting the children's program, a couple came to me and they were carrying a child in their arms. She was uh, two years old. When I asked what happened, her brother had stepped on an improvised explosive device. He was killed immediately and it had shredded her legs. And she had, have you ever seen the external fixators? The pins and somebody's legs that are on the outside. And I knew it was gonna be bad because here she is living in a, what you might call a refugee camp in dirty, horrible conditions with pins in her leg. Muhammad was with me 
haven't joined our team by now. And I kneeled down to take a look at this wound. I looked over at Muhammad and I said, hey buddy, this is gonna be bad. He has four daughters. He's a sensitive guy anyway. I said, this is gonna be bad, but I'm gonna need you to be my assistant, okay? He says, yes, it's okay, I hope. And as I undid the wrappings, I saw the infection start to pour out. And I tried, I tried to clean it. I'm, look, man, I'm EMT certified. I'm not a doctor. You know, I, the, the, the most advanced medicine I can do is called prayer. And I started praying. But this was beyond what I could do in that situation. And as I cleaned out the infection, I realized there was a bone sticking out. There was nothing I could do for this woman. And my wife, who's very much my better half, she's there and she's trying to like, you know, hush the girl down because this girl's just wailing and crying and screaming because she knows this is gonna hurt. And my wife's like, oh, here's water. Oh, here's a stuffed animal. Oh, here's a Twinkie. It was not really a Twinkie, it's kind of an off-brand, but he's trying to give her a Twinkie. You know, those off-brand Twinkies are just as good. And I'm like, Noel, Leave this girl alone. She's not. She's in more pain. You know, I didn't say it. I was thinking it, though. Same thing. Leave her alone. It's more pain than we're ever going to feel. I realized there wasn't anything I could do for this girl. She's going to lose her leg no matter what. She was probably going to die in about four days. And uh, I wrapped up her wounds, and my wife opened up that Twinkie and gave it to her, and she went, ah! <laughs> And she devoured that thing, one and then another. And that's why your wife needs to be a part of your ministry, whatever it is that you do. Because she completes you. She completes you. When I looked up and I looked at the girl's father, I realized something. I realized that her father was a man that we had met four days prior when we had reconned that area. We had given him money to help his daughter. And he had not taken her to a hospital. And ladies and gentlemen, I would like to confess to you that I thought some things that were not Christ-like. I saw it in my head how it was going to go. I was like, oh, this guy's going to take his daughter to a hospital. One way or the other. Amen. <laughs> I said, I mean, I'm going to put, I'm going to get this guy alone. I'm going to put him up against the wall and be like, hey, man, if your daughter dies, so do you. And this is where the spirit comes in, right? Because you can't let the flesh control you in situations like this. We do it too often. And then you look back and you look back on it and you're just so convicted because you realize you messed up. And so I, you know, and knowing myself, knowing that I'm a, I'm a fallen individual, I, I, I look back and I, you know, at all the times I mess up, I'm like, Sky, you're going to mess this one up too. Pray about it. I pray. How do I handle this situation? Well, same situation, it's the same exact thing that you've been in before. How do you handle any other situation and, and walk away with it without feeling uh, uh, horrible with love, right? And here's the thing about love, something I've been thinking about lately is that it's not... It's not a feeling. We get brought up getting taught that, that it's this feeling like, oh yeah, you know, you're, you're sitting next to her, right? you're sitting next to your lady. She reaches over, she grabs your hand, and you feel them little butterflies. You know what I'm saying? Like you're going down a roller coaster real fast. No. When you look at a definition of love in scripture, like in 1 Corinthians 13, we all know that, right? 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. Look, We have a definition of what love is, what love isn't. And you know, if you look at all that, guess what it requires? Action. Action or inaction. So if it's an action or an inaction, much like forgiveness, it's a choice. It's a choice. You don't have to feel the love. It's an action. I can choose to love somebody. And let me tell you, as much as I didn't want to choose to love that man right there, I got down on my knees and I was like, brother, I have my translator there. I said, brother, if you believe in love and, you're, and if your God believes in love, 
you will take your daughter to a hospital tonight because she's going to die if you don't. And that was all I said. And the next day I saw him at the hospital, the nearest one. He took his daughter. I haven't been able to go back into Syria to catch up with them. Uh, so please just continue to pray that that young lady um, made it out alive. Walking through Raqqa put, put the life that people had to lead under ISIS into perspective for me. We went to a traffic circle and we stopped there and I said, I looked at our interpreter and I said, buddy, hey, why are we stopping here? He said, this is where ISIS used to execute the prisoners. It was a traffic circle with a fence all around with outward facing spikes. And I said, why here? He said, after they cut off their head, they put it on the spike. 360 spikes all the way around, every single one had a head. I went to their prison. Some of you guys may have read about this, which was a soccer field. I saw above ground the cage where they kept their Yazidi slave girl prisoners. And once a day, maybe Wednesday, you come in and you pick, pick which girl you want to buy. Maybe 200, maybe 500. Depends on if she's a virgin or not. This is the nature of the evil that we were facing and still are. The torture chamber underground where they would stretch out their victims on racks of wire or hang them upside down. This is the evil that we're combating, ladies and gentlemen. Last summer, shortly after speaking here, I had the opportunity to go to Western Pennsylvania where I met a, name, a man named Bruce Latimer. Bruce Latimer started a ministry called the Children's Rescue Initiative. And for several years, he was in Pakistan combating the slave trade in the brick fields there. He would go in and pull out these slaves and get them set up in a different part of the country. And then he was poisoned. And he was combating uh, massive medical complications for several months. When he came back and he had to lie low for a while, uh, the Lord gave him a new ministry in a different country in Asia. And I would love to tell you where we operate at, but um, operational security and all that. So just suffice to say that we operate in a country called uh, in Asia. So some of you may not uh, be aware that slavery is actually still a problem in modern day. I actually saw something on Facebook the other day. It actually angered me quite a bit. It said, no white person has ever owned a slave today. And no black person that has ever been a slave today. And I said, are you mental? 30 million slaves in the world today. 30 million. Mauritania, 20% of the population is enslaved. Haiti, where poor children are sent into cities and forced to serve rich families. Moldova, where immigrants are enslaved in nearby countries like Ukraine and Russia. Nigeria, where there are 800,000 slaves. Russia, 1 million slaves. Uzbekistan, 1.2 million slaves. Bangladesh, 1.5 million slaves. You guys know about the Rohingya crisis, right? All the, the people who are persecuted in Burma, and they're forced to flee to Bangladesh. And the Rohingya, they have to take turns. The parents have to take turns sleeping in the, in the refugee camps because people are sleeping, slipping into their tents and taking their children from them. Pakistan, 2.1 million slaves. China, 3.4 million slaves. India, 18.4 million. 
slaves. If anybody tells you that slavery isn't a problem in today's world, they're absolutely wrong and feel free to correct them on that. When I started researching the country where we operate, I read that there were 20,000 slaves in the whole country. When I got there, I found out it was 20,000 slaves in that country's capital alone. 12,000 girls are captured a year and snuck into India where 1% ever make it back. 99% of them live and die in the brothels. Raped on average 6,000 times in their life. The rest die, overabused and diseased. Now I first started to hear about trafficking when I was a student at Tacoa Falls College, which is the Bible College in Northeast Georgia. And Justice Campaign would come through. Anybody ever hear Justice Campaign? They raise awareness. And they would come through and they say, hey, trafficking is a problem in the United States and abroad. And I said, oh, is it? And I did some research and they told me about slavery and I said, oh, okay. And then a year later, the next year I was a student there, Justice Campaign came in and said, slavery is still a problem here and abroad. And I said, oh, okay, well, what are you doing about it? You told me that a year ago. The Children's Rescue Initiative physically goes in and removes children who are being trafficked out, both in forced labor and in prostitution, or boots on the ground. We pull them out, we take them to a safe house, and then we provide for them afterwards so they can attend school and have funds to survive. On my second mission, the Children's Rescue Initiative rescued 32 children in six days. There is an average of three days, uh, three children rescued per day when we go into country. On average, our missions are 10 days to two weeks. And on my second mission, I found myself having to take the children and pick them up and carry them through the jungle to the safe house because they're so malnourished. They can't make it on foot. This is the situation that we're dealing with right now. I, I went through the mill in Mosul, okay? Some of the worst combat I've ever seen. I was a Marine in Fallujah, 2005 to 2006. I thought I'd seen it all, you know? There I am, you know, of course, we all think we've seen it all at the age of 19, right? But I thought I'd seen it all. And then I went to Mosul, and I thought, oh man, I'm hard now. Nothing will ever affect me like that. And when I sat there in that vehicle and I turned around and I saw two girls 12 and 14 with thousand yard stairs bacon that had been raped who knows how many times the night before I knew that I hadn't seen it all I didn't expect to be emotionally affected but that broke me isn't this an evil that I don't understand at least I understood ISIS they're trying to be as faithful to their interpretation of God and their prophet as they possibly can. But what drives someone to say, hey, I have a good job for you. I have a good job for you. Come with me. And then all of a sudden you're bound and being sold in the slave trade. What drives someone to say, hey, come here. I have this young girl. She's brand new. Why don't you spend some money so you can spend the night with her? What drives someone to pay that money so that they can do it? I don't... I don't fully understand it yet, and I ask that you pray for me because the last thing I need is to carry hatred in my heart when I'm going to do the Lord's work. We're not called for hatred. We're called to do everything we do out of love because love is far more powerful than any amount of hate. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what continues to drive us. I don't understand it, and I do ask for prayer.
Both missions do need continued support. The Children's Rescue Initiative, if, if there's anything that this church can provide, it's this. We need sponsors for these children. Every child that we pull out, we have to be able to provide for afterwards. And we need sponsors. It's $50 a month to be able to sponsor a child once they're pulled out of trafficking. This provides for their clothes. This provides for their food. This provides for their school supplies. This provides for their hygiene products. $50 a month for one child. And I ask that you guys would consider that. The Free Burma Rangers continue to run missions both in uh, Burma, where a ceasefire has been broken in Karin State. They're burning down their villages, chasing the people from their lands, and the fighting continues. They continue to run missions into Syria, and we will continue working in the IDP camps. Again, I ask for continued support for them. I ask that you would pray for them. And I'm going to selfishly ask for prayer for myself. Um, oh, about a, a week and a half ago, I was up in Pennsylvania, and I was uh, acting as a uh, as instructor for the medical portion of uh, training that we were doing for the Children's Rescue Initiative, uh, having had the most uh, uh, medical experience in the field. And I've never dealt with not being able to sleep at night. I've never uh, dealt with having to relive a traumatic experience until now. And looking back and wishing that you had done more, torturing yourself with that, I find myself doing that. So I do ask that you guys would be willing to pray for me um, I've been carrying around that weight. I find it distracting. Even up here, I find myself, as I speak about uh, my experiences in Iraq, this is one of the first times that's, that's happened to me while I'm up speaking. Um, I ask that you guys would just uh, uh, pray that that burden would be lifted. You know, that's a spiritual attack of the enemy, and I refuse to be slowed down by these attacks that he's given me. I'm going to keep doing the Lord's work as long as that's put in front of me. But, um, you know, we all have to take time for ourselves and make sure that we recalibrate so we can do it in a way that glorifies God. Um, Pastor, if you would uh, be willing to come up here and uh, lead in prayer in a second. Um, so uh, afterwards, again, uh, we are not quite as aesthetically pleasing as I normally would be with uh, if my wife were here. But I do ask you guys come up, ask some questions, take a look at what we got. If you have, um, and please grab a prayer card and uh, put it up on your fridge so you can keep us in mind. Uh, thank you guys so much for having me. Um, I love you, and may the Lord bless you.